The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm John Emmons, intern at Lawfare, with an episode of Rational Security for February 26th, 2023. For today's episode, the team at Lawfare decided to cross-post this week's episode of Rational Security, a podcast hosted by Scott R. Anderson, Quinna Jurassic, and Alan Rosenstein, in which they cover the week's big national security news stories. Today's episode is entitled Rational Security 2.0, the not-like-the-greatest-experts-at-podcasting edition. In the episode, Anderson, Jurassic, and Rosenstein discuss the one-year mark in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, two Supreme Court cases regarding tech platforms' liability for hosted content, which threatens to redefine the regulatory landscape of the internet, the latest developments in Dominion Voting Systems' defamation lawsuit against Fox News, and more. This is Rational Security. So when I was a younger man, which is to say when I still lived on the East Coast, I really enjoyed traveling between Boston and New York and DC on Amtrak. And I would always sit in the quiet car. And here's the question for you all in the spirit of the fabulous Reddit subreddit, am I the asshole? If anyone so much as twitched audibly on the quiet car, I was all about the shushing. I was just the most self-righteous avenging angel of the quiet car. And I got to say, as I've gotten older and I've hopefully gotten wiser and I've had a child and I try to see the good in everyone, I have come to the conclusion that I was 100% right and would do the exact same thing if I were given another chance. What do you all think? You know, it's really a risk reward uh, sort of calculus on that one because it depends on who the loudspeaker is and what their reaction is going to be. I I don't care. What are they going to do? Shiv me? Like, whatever, man. You could be as annoyed with me as you want. Have you ever taken the overnight train from DC to New York uh, on a Friday? Yeah, they might shiv you because they are <laughs> a raging drunk in every car of that train. I used to take it back and forth regularly up to Connecticut, and it was a nightmare. So, so in that case, I would not judge anyone. I grew up on Long Island, and so I spent much of my life on the Long Island Railroad between you know oh, various you Long know, Island you know suburbs in New York City. So yes, there are certain evening trains, and everyone's coming back drinking that I would not mess with people, but. That's not the that's not the Amtrak quiet car, though. I will say I once saw a woman who was talking in the quiet car be tapped on the shoulder and informed that this was the quiet car. And she just said, oh, and then turned around and kept talking. And it was the most incredible thing I've ever witnessed. Like, I was really mad at her, obviously. But I also just felt like I wish I had that level of confidence, you know, or disdain for your fellow man. Yeah, (laughs) she was just living her life. 
I think it's only fair that they also have a loud car because I need a car that allows me. <laughs> That's the dining car. That's what the dining car is for. You post up at the dining car and you have your and you have your like meeting in the dining car while eating a seventeen dollar lunchables. <laughs> Didn't they used to have a, essentially like a drunk car on Metro North until they next the bar that? car? Yeah. Yeah, the bar car. There we go. I knew it wasn't called that. Yeah. The the Long Island Railroad is just one big drunk car. Yeah. So is MJ Transit at certain hours on certain days. You've never seen people hit Amstelites that hard. You feel like Amstelite is like, you know, the white collar business person's afternoon drink where you're like, yep, commuting back and forth, pounding Amstelites. I also didn't know that they did Bud Light in a triple tall boy configuration. But there you go. It's like a personalized keg. Half liter. That's impressive. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I am back here with my two regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are thrilled to have you with us this week. A very exciting week for all three of us because there has been a lot of national security law in the news, most notably in the Supreme Court, where we have heard not one but two oral arguments that we have been binge listening to uh, over the last two days uh, to get ready to talk about. As punishment for our sins. As punishment for our sins and our decision (laughs) to go into this godforsaken industry. Yes, that's exactly right. It has been a big week, and I'm very excited. How are you all holding up with the labor of having to sit through two exceptionally long, even by the standard of the form, oral arguments for in Supreme Court cases, particularly the first one, I thought? Yeah, I'm really tired. I'm super tired, man. And also, it is uh, it is about to snow like 20 inches in Minnesota, and it is one of the rare situations in which the whole state has shut down, including daycare. So I was trying to listen to the Supreme Court argument this morning while chasing my child around the Minnesota Children's Museum, which is a fabulous place, God bless it, but not the most conducive to thinking about uh, tort liability for terrorist attacks. Yeah, I mean, what, what does Isaac think about Shasta? More snacks. <laughs> Treble damages if you travel snacks. Treble snacks is actually Isaac's view. (laughs) His treble snacks is Isaac's view on all these things. It's actually, I I like that kind of as a t shirt, treble snacks. (laughs) It's a good band. That is a very, very good joke for anybody who has read 18 USC section (laughs) 2333. Otherwise, (laughs) I'm not going to get it. The overlap of of NATSEC law professionals and parents of small children, treble snacks. (laughs) It's great. I agree. I would buy that t shirt. I would buy that t shirt. Well, we are excited to have you, the listeners, here with us for what we are calling the Not Like the Three Greatest Experts at Podcasting Edition in honor of our beloved question mark Supreme Court justices who has been spending the last 48 hours hashing through some very complicated questions about the internet and terrorism liability and where they intersect and acknowledge at one point via Justice Elena Kagan that they are not the nine greatest experts at the internet or anything. Um, no, no, that they are not like amazing. the nine greatest. It's like, I think the like is just what makes it even okay. more I will say, I will defend her there. We can talk about this. Everyone's dunking on this. I thought that it was a good statement of how they're not the greatest experts oh, and understanding think, the limitations of their own experts. I don't think anyone's dunking on them. I thought I thought oh, it was I just a very so funny, self-aware... No, no, no. I, 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 give, I give Elena... You know, credit for sort of for I thought that was great, one hundred percent. And similarly, the listeners should know we don't know what we're doing. (laughs) So you know, we barely got Quinta's microphone to work earlier today. So at this point, we're not the best at podcasting. 
And yet you weirdos have all been listening to us for 18 months. So who's who's the fool, the bigger fool, the, the fool or the fool that listens to the fool's podcast? The big the, the question of our era, truly, <laughs> truly. Well, with that in mind, uh, let us dig into some of the big stories for this week. Topic one, the HIMAR anniversary. The war in Ukraine is one year old this week. The Biden administration marked the occasion with a presidential visit to Kiev and finding of crimes against humanity, while Vladimir Putin celebrated by moving the doomsday clock a bit closer to midnight. What should we make of where the war stands one year in? Topic two, we're living in a post-algorithm world and I'm a post-algorithm girl. So said more or less. It's not quite as good as your, it's not quite as good as your Nikki Haley, you're so fine from last week, but it's It's still pretty good. Still pretty good. It's pretty good reference. I've been, I've been dipping into my 80s Spotify for the last couple of weeks. So it's just at top of mind. So said more or less Justice Elena Kagan yesterday, as she and the other members of the Supreme Court heard arguments in Gonzalez v. Google on the scope of protections under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, a case that some argue could break the internet and its companion case. Twitter v. Tamna, we heard oral argument in this morning as we're recording on Wednesday. What do we learn from these oral arguments and what might the ramifications be? And topic three, bold dominion. Dominion Voting System filed a stunning brief in its defamation lawsuit against Fox News earlier this week, which lays out in 200 detailed pages the extent to which Fox's executives and on-air personalities knowingly amplified lies about the company's conduct around the 2020 election. What do we learn about Fox's culpability and what would a Dominion win mean moving forward? For our first topic, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started. So I find it kind of hard to believe that we're somehow at the one-year mark of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, which I believe will be this Friday, February 24th. The war, I think, is is at kind of a weird place right now. So on the one hand, there's been a lot of reporting about, uh, you know, have Russia and Ukraine fallen into a stalemate of sorts? Should we be waiting for, you know, a major action from either side? Because the the fighting has kind of calcified along particular lines in the, the east and south of the country. Within the United States, I think there's a rising chorus of voices saying that the U.S. is sending too much money to Ukraine and that we should be sending less, mostly on the right and the sort of lefty, or I don't even know what to call it, the the Tulsi Gabbard caucus. But at the same time, the Biden administration has really been doubling down, really in the last few days, in its support of Ukraine. So the State Department came out accusing Russia of committing crimes against humanity, Kamala Harris and Biden themselves made remarks to that effect. And last but not least, of course, Biden made a surprise trip to Kiev, uh, where he walked across a square in the center of the city next to Zelensky while an uh, air raid siren was blaring, which I think is a pretty boss move, although I'm sure that it really freaked out his Secret Service team. <laughs> so, Scott, let me go to you first. I guess general reflections on the past year or if you want to give your thoughts about where we might be headed in the the months to come. Sure. I mean, this is an amazing anniversary on a lot of fronts. I think we've kind of lost sight of how amazing it is. I mean, if you had asked us on February 25th, 26th last year, you know, the day or two after the Russian invasion launched, you know, whether President Biden was going to be able to walk through downtown Kyiv Uh, alongside President Zelensky, that there would still be a President Zelensky. It was in serious doubt, right? I mean, you can listen, sorry to interrupt, but you can listen to our podcast 
And it was not in yeah. serious doubt. Like, we were all like, well, I don't know. They got 48 hours. Good luck well, to them. Well, and I was just saying, saying that Zelensky was obviously going to flee Kiev for Lviv because they couldn't possibly stay there, which in retrospect, his insane decision to stay in Kiev has to be like one of the major turning points in early on in the war, right? I think that's probably right. I mean, it's a, sh- you know, wh- which is the chicken and which is the egg, but nonetheless, it is a really, really compelling and historic and will be remembered as a historic sign of Ukrainian resolve, which is the story of the last year. I mean, Ukraine has lived through something that, you know, I think people understandably had an idea that it might be harder than Russia certainly thought it was for Russia to be able to take and hold Ukraine. But the extent to which Ukraine has been able to push back effectively is really amazing, something that Ukrainians deserve an immense amount of credit for. And frankly, the Biden administration does as well, along with its European allies and others who have backed Ukraine and done it in a way that seems very effective. We know the Biden administration was ahead of the curve in some ways, at least publicly ahead of the Zelensky administration in Ukraine in terms of raising alarm bells over Russia, uh, although it seems like certainly the Ukrainians were doing a lot of preparations kind of beneath the surface and behind the scenes. And they've been able to keep a coalition together to impose unprecedented sanctions against Russia, provide unprecedented levels and types of support to Ukraine, keep the Europeans on board. I mean, it is really a huge diplomatic achievement. I'm willing to criticize the Biden administration on lots of foreign policy fronts, uh, as I've done the last few weeks around the balloon, uh, for example. But the Ukraine conflict has been handled masterfully, uh, and I think really impressively. And so it's not surprising and frankly, kind of really appropriate to see President Biden taking center stage with Zelensky because he's been such a driving force for this alliance and making it happen and managing it really, really effectively to a point that we're at this moment now that I'm not sure a lot of us would have expected or put money on being even a possibility a year ago. Now, what does that mean moving forward? I think we know we're headed into a potentially difficult stage of this conflict because we're at the point now where it becomes a war of attrition. And I mean that in the sort of, uh, you know, economic game theory model sort of context in that now we're holding out to see, you know, who can withstand the higher level of pain. Ukrainians still want to make progress on the ground. I'm sure they're going to push and continue to push to do that. Uh, there's degrees of support that's going to be provided to them, probably not as much as they ask for or want, um, but some support to get them to do that. Um, but it's going to be hard fought, particularly if they want to push into Crimea and other places that where Russia has been fortifying its position for multiple years, right? Russia, meanwhile, seems in it for the long haul. Um, you know, they are still, Putin's been willing and has successfully so far weathered huge domestic costs to stay in this conflict, to keep throwing more people, more money, more weapons against it to an extent that is long-term damaging Russia and making it less of a hostile actor in a way that probably benefits the United States and Europe in the long run, even though it's really painful and hard on Ukraine today. you know. Uh, but they so far, he hasn't shied from doubling down on that, and there are no signs that he's going to. Uh, and so it's now going to be this battle of wills. And the hard part is the kind of the political cycle. President Biden's going to be up for re-election in two years. European leaders are under increasing pressure, particularly if the global economy takes a downward turn, as it still might, although somehow we've gotten this far without it really doing that to a serious extent. So a lot of things could still go wrong. It's still a very perilous moment. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's entirely appropriate to take a minute, minute and celebrate and and marvel at what is really a miraculous year of resistance by the Ukrainians and and something that, I don't know, gives us, at least it gives me a lot of hope for uh, the direction things might be headed in. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I agree with everything Scott said, though. Maybe I read the facts in a more optimistic light. I'm sort of curious, Scott, whether you think I'd be overly optimistic. And that is, you're right that it's a war of attrition, but it does seem to be a war war of attrition in which 
the Ukrainians and the West are on a much, much better footing than the Russians, you know, which is to say the Ukrainians have stabilized their lines. They have taken back a substantial amount of territory. They clearly believe in their own cause and the righteousness of that cause. The West, for its part, can continue to supply the Ukrainians at, you know, costs that are frankly just not that high relative to European and, you know, United States budgets. Um, we've gotten through the winter, uh, at least in Europe, if not in Minnesota. Um, and so the, the worries, right, about Russia using its gas supplies as a kind of energy blackmail seems to no longer, frankly, be a pressing concern. And, you know, if this war drags on into a second year, which it very well might, you know, we might be here a year from now, um, talking about this, presumably the Europeans have nine months, 10 months to get their act together so they can be even better positioned. Whereas the Russians are bankrupting themselves, destroying an entire generation of men in a country that already has a remarkably screwed up demographic profile, um, essentially becoming a client state of China, dragging the Chinese down in the process as well. Um, because the, this is the last thing that China needs is this distraction as it goes through, through its own very difficult um, na new navigation of the demographic middle income trap. So yes, I totally agree with you, Scott, right? If, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is president in 2024, you know, like all bets are off, right? Uh, there's you know, no question that weird things can happen and things are unpredictable. And we know things are unpredictable because last year at this time, we were all going, uh, well, good luck for the Ukrainians, but it's not looking good. And yet, even if I had to bet, it just it definitely seems like the the West is in a much 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 better much better position. And you know, the other thing that I, I I sort of forgot to 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 mention, but I think is important is, you know, I do think that one thing that is helpful to the Ukrainians is is I do think that the West and in Europe in particular, I think has recognized there's no going back to the placation of of Russia and that hand wringing about whether or not we should try to avoid getting into a war with Russia are at this point pointless because you know. Putin is right on one thing, right? There is a de facto state of conflict between the West and Russia. And it's about managing that, right? Rather than avoiding it. Putin started it. So it's his fault. Um, but I think that Europeans are beginning to uh, understand that. I um, mean, whether they act on that explicitly by allowing Ukraine into the EU, as Zelensky is begging to do, or just to continue, you know, the German supplying tanks and everyone supplying uh, money, that remains to be seen. But, you know, while I don't think that the war is going to wind down anytime soon, again, because Russia is in it for the long haul, and for Putin, this is an existential threat to his political regime, and therefore, <laughs> to his quite possibly life, um, he will keep doing this until the bitter end. But the bitter end, I don't see how Russia wins. Yeah, but I mean, back to your point about the the winter, I actually do think that that's been really important. I mean, it's been a extremely warm winter on the east coast of the US and across Europe and however much of a bummer that is from a perspective from the perspective of someone who misses snow, sorry Alan, and someone who's who's worried about climate. Um it is also true that it really screwed Russia's plans for using energy interdependence to kind of stick the knife in on Europe and there's been some interesting reporting about how the use of green energy in Europe because of this sort of sudden realization of the need that it's actually really bad to be dependent on Russian oil and gas has skyrocketed. 
to the point where I might, my impression, at least from the reporting, is that Europe is actually probably in a much better position for future cold winters because it's had this time to kind of amp up. Um, which is just another example of how you know the these circumstances I think are going to substantially weaken Russia's future hand as well as their hand in this moment. Yeah, I mean, I think you both have really identified a lot of reasons why there are reasons to be optimistic. I agree with all of those, right? Like, I, I don't think it's a it's a doomed path forward for Ukraine or or for the kind of Western plus alliance that that's backing Ukraine in this conflict by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I do think there are are pressure points still across the horizon, right? The first one's going to be the Ukrainian economy. The Ukrainian economy is suffering huge, huge amounts of pressure. It is now going to have to shift to you know a long-term perspective where it's not just in a fight for its survival and existential war, still in that to some extent, but is in a different sort of longer-term conflict where it actually has to match that with some sort of normalcy of life that they can accomplish again. That's a victory, but it poses certain challenges. Western support has been massive, but it's probably not enough, nor is it clear that it could be enough to fully make up for the lost economic activity. Uh, that pressure to provide those different types of assistance, not just an arm, but economic assistance in terms feeds into a lot of domestic pressures for Western states and particularly for the United States, um, where foreign assistance is always a point of tension. And we saw, you know, Ron DeSantis give a major foreign policy speech last week, who is kind of the presumptive front runner now about for the Republican nomination. Although, as I've said on this podcast before, I wouldn't get ahead of the put the cart ahead of the horse on that necessarily yet. But nonetheless, a big voice for a big block of the Republican Party. And he's very cool towards Ukraine and the Ukraine endeavor. Part of that is about not wanting to give point to the Biden administration, but that's going to be the dominant political incentive um, for Republicans who control the House of Representatives for the next two years. We saw the last Congress very wisely, I think, give some of the most important security assistance authorities to the Biden administration for a year and a half out, right, to try and get through the next two years without giving a Republican House a chance to really raise too many obstacles. But they still could. And their incentive to do so gets worse for the next two years. So, you know, I do think we need to be aware that there are still challenges to come. The other thing I, I do think we need to keep an eye on is China. China has walked a very fine line thus far in this conflict kind of not backing Russia to the extent they could have, also not joining with the West and sanctioning Russia, obviously. We don't know exactly where that trajectory is headed. Xi Jinping is in a crisis moment. We just saw a bilateral difficult moment with the United States over cancellation of a major meeting and the balloon crisis, right? We know that Xi Jinping is supposed to give a speech in the next few days that both by some accounts is going to double down and perhaps even increase lethal support for Russia in the conflict, while at the same time, kind of reemphasizing traditional Chinese foreign policy, which is much about non-intervention or respecting national boundaries, how he's going to reconcile those things. I don't know. Maybe they're one or the other report is wrong. You know, we don't know how this is all going to come together, but China is still a big actor that could swing things a lot of different directions. Um, and then we just don't know what R Russia's domestic tolerance is, what Putin's tolerance is, where his limits is. That's why it's war of attrition, right? We're waiting out to see when are we going to hit that uncertain pain threshold where it forces them to capitulate. Right now, I agree. I think the momentum on the Ukrainian side, on the West side, and I hope it stays that way. But I, I don't just don't think we should be unrealistic about the fact there are real challenges still ahead. So let's make sure that we talk about the determination by the U.S. that Russia had committed crimes against humanity. Scott, can you just give a little background for listeners on A, what that means, and B, what the significance is that the U.S. has made what appears to be some kind of formal determination coming from the State Department? Or, or is it like Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy? It's not exactly. actually a thing. 
And lots of people are tweeting about it. It is a notable symbolic move uh, that I think has a limited practical significance. Um, basically, it means that crimes against humanity, which is a category of acts that are unlawful under international criminal law, just like war crimes are and genocide are, those are different categories that aren't addressed by a formal finding yet, although war crimes is kind of handled a little differently. There's no doubt war crimes have been committed by the Russians in Ukraine. Uh, it's just not subject to the same sort of like pronouncements as the other two. And sorry, Scott, d- d- just for the, what is the difference? Can you just remind, like, I just don't, I, Liz, I don't, I'm not sure I know the difference. Sure. I mean, there are more granular differences. Uh, genocide is about, you know, the categorical extinction of a whole population, right? Or a substantial portion of population. Um, so a, a, a scale and it deliberate, specifically a th- high threshold of intent. Um, that's the reason why those tend to be the most controversial determinations as we kind of talked about in the podcast before a few months ago. Crimes against humanity is all sorts of horrible things that can happen to people about violence, targeting, starving, a whole universe of things that can happen outside of an armed conflict context, like states can commit crimes against humanity on their own. And the war crimes are those things committed in the context of an armed conflict. So like like executing POWs is would be would be a war crime. Would be a war exactly. Crime. Okay. Um, there, there's not a total perfect overlap between the two, so I'm oversimplifying, but that's the big distinction. The determination, of course, matters because it means, hey, look, we really think that Russia is doing something really bad here under national law. It doesn't matter practically that much because there's not, unlike war crimes, which are covered by the Geneva Conventions, unlike genocide, which is covered by the Genocide Convention, there's no actual international treaty about crimes against humanity. It is only really addressed through the Rome Convention for the International Criminal Court. The United States isn't a party there, and that treaty really deals with obligations between member states and the ICC. With genocide, with war crimes, there is an obligation to punish or extradite, meaning states that are parties to those conventions, if you say these are happening, you have to either prosecute the person or extradite them to somebody who will prosecute them. There's no similar body that has obligations like that for crimes against humanity. Is the United States going to treat them differently? No, they can still try and get extradition for them. They can still try and prosecute them if they can find a domestic hook, although it's actually not clear they could um, because of domestic limitations on criminal statutes um, and nationality-based restrictions. But you know those obligations could still apply as, as policy measures, but it's primarily symbolic significance um, at this point. And I think it really is a stand-in, frankly, for a genocide determination, which they have not made, although you know President Biden has described the acts as genocidal kind of rhetorically in the past and hasn't really, to my knowledge, walked that back or rescinded that. I guess the other big treaty thing we should mention this week is New Start. Uh, President Putin withdrew from New Start, uh, the last major bilateral nonproliferation treaty between the United States and Russia. That is a big deal because it's the last major bilateral nonproliferation treaty. We saw the Trump administration initiate withdrawal from the Open Skies Treaty and the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which were the second and third last <laughs> uh, nuclear treaties. It is a sad thing because it was kind of the last kind of shred of bilateral cooperation on non-proliferation. In practice, however, the obligations and practices, procedures put under it hadn't really been used in several years, both because of the pandemic and because of bilateral tensions. Um, So I'm not sure it practically makes that big a difference either, except in the long run, where if you had a different Russian government or things were dramatically different, it means now you're going to have to negotiate a new nuclear treaty as opposed to being able to just pick back up an old one that people have been kind of neglecting. That's why I I had come out and opposed INF treaty and Open Skies treaty withdrawal, even even though those had similar issues. I simply think it's a bad thing to withdraw from this one in the short term doesn't really make that big a difference to by my understanding. Well, from international law to domestic law, let us go to the United States Supreme Court. 
to whom we have been spending a lot of time listening over the last 48 hours or so. We have seen back-to-back Tuesday-Wednesday arguments scheduled in two closely interrelated Supreme Court cases, Gonzalez v. Google, Twitter v. Tomna, um, which together are dealing with the difficult questions, both of A, the extent to which internet service providers, particularly social media platforms, can be held liable for providing services to terrorist groups by people who are then killed or injured by those terrorist groups and terrorist attacks after the fact, and then under the under a cause of action for civil liability for acts of terrorism, the Anti-Terrorism Acts, uh, which has been amended by JASTA, a kind of controversial law from 2016. And then on top of that, the issue that has kind of gotten the most attention and would be in some ways, uh, at least by a lot of measures, the most um, substantial potential outcome here, whether immunity for those activities is provided by Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which provides a high degree of immunity to social media platforms for publishing content of third parties or managing content of third parties. The question then is saying, well, when does something, if at some point does it third-party content stop being third-party content? Is there a point at which these immunity is removed because something the platform is doing about how it processes it, presents it, prioritizes, or recommends certain content, makes it its own in a way that no longer falls under this immunity. I think the latter has been the big focus for you guys. So let me start with that. Uh, and then we can come back to Tom not kind of more briefly at the end if, if we have time. You know, what did you make of oral arguments yesterday uh, at the time we record this in terms of where they came out? That was a really interesting set of arguments all over the place, like really interesting set of questions. People, I mean, you could really see the justice genuinely really wrestling with a really hard question. To an extent that actually maybe wasn't as expected, particularly people like Justice Thomas, who has been openly critical of Section 230 in the past, yet was very skeptical of arguments to try and kind of try and disrupt it, uh, at least from the outset this time. Quinta, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so I have been thinking about a scene from Arrested Development where one of the characters pulls out from the freezer a bag that's labeled Dead Dove Do Not Eat and then opens the bag and says, I don't know what I was expecting. And that's kind of how it seemed the Supreme Court justices felt about this case. so gross. (laughs) Well, it was a frozen dove, so it's okay, Alan. He didn't didn't eat it, He didn't eat it, yeah. Um, No, but like... Justice Thomas has been clamoring for a case to let him take a crack at Section 230. The Gonzalez, the petitioners, uh, their cert petition, I think almost explicitly said, like, great news, here's your case, Justice Thomas. And then, you know, they got up there and Thomas was like, well, what the hell is this? Because it's not actually an easy case. It, it gets to some very complicated technical questions and requires a lot of extremely difficult line drawing. And the petitioner's lawyer was not helpful in providing the justices with lines to draw. It's a separate discussion how, how much of an unbelievable face plant that um, oral argument was from the petitioner's counsel, which was really painful to listen to at, at some points. Um, but it really just seemed to me like there was, you know, Google had argued in a in a brief, I think, that the court should dismiss this case as improvidently granted. Um, and I was kind of skeptical that that was ever going to pan out. But after that argument, there was absolutely a bit of like, oh, no, why did we open this bag? And it, I would not be surprised if they found some way to get rid of it because they, they did seem to be genuinely struggling to grapple with the issues. But the issues are really hard. Um, and as Kagan acknowledged with the 
you know, nine experts on the internet line, it's not obvious that the court is equipped to deal with them. And certainly not in a case where the facts are this tangled and attenuated and it gets to this sort of very difficult question of whether you can distinguish recommendation from publication and on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, so what, what it, this is this, so what it reminds me is one of the best things that Donald Trump has ever said. And he said a lot of great things because as we all remember, he has the best words, but this was, I think shortly after the Republicans failed to repeal Obamacare and Trump said, who knew that healthcare was this complicated? And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, uh, my, my wife, who's a healthcare economist, actually has a needle point of that that she did. It's pretty fabulous. I actually forgot that he said that. Yeah, that it's really good. Moment. It's really good. And it, it, this strikes me like that, right? Like, who, who knew that this is so complicated? Um, and, and, you know, to just expand on something Quinta said, you know, sometimes when the court, takes up a really, really high profile issue. It's because like they know what they think and they just want to do it, right? So like whatever you think about abortion or affirmative action or this or that, like, you know, at the end of the day, people kind of know what they think and the court takes those cases to say what it thinks, right? And sometimes the court takes a case, I think, thinking it knows what it thinks or wanting a crack at it. And then again, once it opens the bag with the real head looks in and realizes that it's dead frozen dove in there. Um, and I think this is... See, it works. It, it works. Does, no, it does work. It, it totally works. Um, it, it, it does work. And, and I thought it was, it was fascinating. I mean, I will say I found it actually quite heartening, you know, frustrating from the perspective of we're not going to get a clear resolution on Section 230, but heartening from the perspective of, you know, we're so used to thinking of the court, because to be clear, it is, as a very political institution, you know, fundamentally like just, you know, a third branch of the legislature, the a super Senate, you know, however you want to call it. Um, it's so predictable what the, you know, Republican justices or the Democratic justices will say on any particular issue. And it's really, really refreshing to hear uh, an argument where it's completely unclear what anyone thinks and nothing falls on along obvious ideological lines. Because it reminds you that, like, there is such a thing as good faith, like, law application or at least attempt. Um, and so that, that, as frustrating as the opinion was to listen to in a number of respects, that was heartening. You know, what I will say is it does seem more and more likely that the court might literally just get rid of, of this case. But, you know, unlike some folks, I'm not convinced that that's actually going to be very helpful because these 230 issues aren't going away. And even though this is not the cleanest case, even a clean Section 230 case is going to present the court with all of these really tough line drawing problems. You know, the, the the fundamental issue is that the Supreme Court has been sitting on its hands for 27 years since Section 230 was enacted in 1996. And more importantly, 26 years since the Zoran opinion in 1997, which interpreted Section 230 really broadly, became the dominant interpretation and is what created the internet that we know of today. And because the court hasn't answered this question for so long, a sort of reliance interest has essentially built up um, because this multi-trillion dollar industry has built up assuming that 230 is what this broad interpretation says that it is. And this puts the court in a very difficult position because on the one hand, I don't think anyone on the court is particularly happy with the dominant application of 230 as applied to the modern internet. I think everyone kind of understands that the dominant understanding went beyond what Congress 
intended. Or at least I think there are five plus justices who frankly think that if you gave them truth serum, right? But they also realize that ultimately this is something that Congress should do. Now, in my view, and this is something I've sort of argued about before, the way that Cong- you know the way that the Supreme Court could encourage Congress to revisit this issue is actually to rule against the tech companies in Section 230 cases, to interpret Section 230 narrowly, because then the tech companies would freak out, call Congress, and Congress would you know presumably do what it does. But the problem with that is that that would cause a period of r- immense chaos, immense uncertainty. You know, it's no there's no guarantee that Congress would do a particularly good job. And this would be bad enough, but given that you have 26 years of reliance interest built up, the price of that is really high. So what worries me is that because the court both understands that the status quo isn't great, but that changing the status quo is incredibly expensive, we might be stuck in this like second best local maximum for a long time as the court keeps kind of ducking this issue in hopes that Congress will deal with it. But of course, as long as the court ducks the issue, the status quo benefits the companies. And so Congress probably won't deal with the issue. And I just don't fully see how to get out of that mess. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So let me ask you guys, you know, it, it was really clear to me, at least, although feel free to disagree with me, that every justice was engaged in some sort of line drawing exercise and trying to figure out how to do it, right? None of them were satisfied with the idea that this is a categorical immunity that applies to basically any sort of service in this space. And I thought the compelling anecdote that they all seemed, at least every justice who comment on it, seemed to agree shouldn't be covered by immunity, although I think some of them would say maybe the statute does cover it, but it's maybe objectionable from policy grounds, is if you had a media platform where people posted for, I think the example was job postings, and the people who ran the platform said, we're only going to direct this to, for example, white applicants or male applicants because they had in, in, in embedded bias. And they would adjust their algorithm because this all boils down to how do you translate, you know, what a user asks for, a user's actions into a, a a set of guides that you give to them in response to those prompts, right? And so, you know, this company, hypothetical racist company or sexist company sets up algorithms to provide and provide certain benefits to the users they like more. Can Can I just say, I'm pretty sure that that was riffing on a real actual thing that Meta slash Facebook did when it came to housing, right? That they they reached a civil rights settlement, essentially on the argument that their, their algorithms for a sort of housing access platform that they had set up were directing white applicants to housing with other white applicants and so on. So this is not hypothetical at all. 
Yeah, and it's a and it's a compelling. Well, that's a really good point. It's a compelling one because this is an area where I think just about everyone agrees you could have should be able to have a civil claim. Like no one thinks that you should be able to have a company be discriminatory in this way. Maybe some people do. Hopefully, mo- a lot of people find that that's a hard thing to stomach. But you know, Section two thirty, if you accept the position of the platforms, w- would reach that stage, right? Because you're still just producing third party content through some sort of algorithm. No, it's a Google made a concession. I I would need to double check sp- precisely what it was, but I do think Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, that Lisa Blatt bulldozing in as usual for Google um, made <laughs> yeah, that some was, kind of just sidebar. That was quite a performance from Lisa Blatt. You know what? I love Lisa Blatt. She gets up there. She's like, you know what? This is my courtroom. You're lucky that I let you in here. I'm just going to talk. You want to talk? I honestly think the justices are a little scared of Lisa Blatt. (laughs) The contrast between her and uh, uh, poor Eric Schnapper arguing for petitioners was uh, quite something. But in all seriousness, I I remember I'm looking at my notes and I now can't find it. So Alan, please correct me if I'm wrong, that Blatt did make a concession at some point that if there was some kind of really involved decision making by the platform along the lines of what of Scott's hypothetical, what I was saying about meta, the meta housing uh, discrimination settlement, that that would not be covered by 230. And I did think that that was really notable because it showed that Google was able to, uh, depending on how you interpret it, throw meta under the bus um, or, you know, make their position a little more palatable by saying we're not saying that this protects everything that everyone does under any circumstance. My recollection is that she conceded they might be, which is an important <laughs> distinction here. Sure, but that's still a big concession. But when you're talking about law drawing, like line drawing exercises, that's actually pretty substantial because it's saying there might be a certain point where involvement in the algorithm and shaping outcomes, you know, would push past the line. I agree, it's it's substantial, it's important, but it's also, but it's, I think it's short of saying that this hypothetical is necessarily on the far side of that line. Yeah, I mean, I, the the problem is that it's tempting to try to say, well, you know, as long as the platforms are using a neutral algorithm, then Section 230 will apply. But if they're using a non-neutral algorithm that's racist or sexist or otherwise objectionable, then Section 230 shouldn't apply. But like the problem is like the moment you start pushing on this concept, it just kind of like dissolves, um, you know, which, which is a standard issue, frankly, in, you know, all of the law, right? I mean, line drawing is hard for a reason. But I I do think that it reflects sort of kind of a deeper problem, which is that, you know, for better or for worse, for the last 30 years, we've been trying to regulate the internet and in particular platforms, primarily through the civil law, and primarily through this broad immunity provision. And maybe that was fine for a while. But it does seem that at this point, um, these companies are too large, and they are too powerful for that to be sufficient and that you know maybe the the paradigm that this case is part of which is if only we could tweak tort law and uh, kind of uh, tune it to just the right level of liability we could fix the problems of the internet is itself fundamentally flawed and you know what we really need is to let's say have something like 230 because none of these decisions should be made by courts in negligence suits but then on the other hand have a you know, whole regulatory bureaucracy that goes in and actually does make these very fine policy distinctions about what 
these recommendation algorithms can and cannot do. And because they're administrative agencies, they can just do it as policy decisions. They don't have to try to do it as coherent legal principles, which I think, as Tuesday's argument showed, is not possible to do. Yeah. I mean, I think one point there is that, I don't know, Alvin, see what you think of this formulation, that there's there's kind of an irony in how there's all this pressure on 230 because, as you say, these huge companies have taken such a central role in public discourse and that there's something that just kind of rankles about the fact that they do have this immunity. On the other hand, and I think that Blatt made this point, if there are changes made to 230, the companies that will suffer from that, like Google's going to be fine. Right. Google has money coming out of its ears. If it needs to start taking down lots and lots of speech, it'll do that. It has it has the money. It can pay for the moderation. The platforms that would suffer are, you know, the little small platforms. And so you end up in this weird situation where if you tweak 230, you could end up cementing the same kind of monopolization and power over public discourse that led you to tweak it in the first place. I'm not saying your your proposal will do that. I think the administrative agency thing could well work differently. But as you were talking, it just struck me as sort of one of the ironies. I will say, you know, I was I was hardened by the fact that the justices seemed to be taking this question really seriously. There was definitely I was worried we were walking there. We were going to walk in there and, you know, it was just going to be like, YOLO, we hate platforms. We're just going to do it live and see what happens. And that was very much not the the tone that they were taking. Just because, you know, you, you asked me for my thought on, on that issue. Look, I, I mean, I think it's a fair issue. The, the problem is, though, just like, f- first, and this is an ad hominem critique, so it is per se invalid. I do find it frustrating when the companies get up and say, no, 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 don't make this change to the law, because if you do, it'll harm our tiny competitors and it'll help us. It's like, I'm just like, I'm like a little, I, I get it. I just, I find it you a little bit like, frustrating, look like, at us standing up wrong. for the, the little guy. Second, they are, they may not be wrong, which is again, why I prefaced it by saying it's a kind of ad hominem grumpiness. So take it with a grain of salt. But at some point, like how far are you going to push that argument, right? Like for better or for worse, we do have a fairly monopolized internet. Now who those individuals are changes, right? Like, you know, TikTok was nothing three years ago and now it's everything. And you know, TikTok may not survive five years from now, but at any point, right, at any moment, you do see an internet built around giant companies. So which is to say, we may not have a monopolistic internet, but we kind of always have an oligopolistic internet. And it's just, who who are those oligopolists changes? If that's true, um, and that's true not for, frankly, legal reasons, but it's true because of how the economics of attention work, and because network effects are so powerful, um, there's not much we can do about that. So we should just accept that. It's a bummer, but we haven't figured figured out how to fix that and then pass whatever laws we need to fix that problem. So again, it's not that I'm unsympathetic to the worry about harming the the new entrant. It's it's more that I just, I, I, I think if, if that's your overriding concern, then frankly, almost any regulation is going to be uh, suspect because any regulation is going to, is going to impose differential and, greater compliance costs probably on smaller entities than larger entities. Uh, and then that just leads you to no regulation at all, which like, again was like probably fine in 1996 and maybe it was fine in 20, 2005 was less fine in 2015. And I just think is much, much less fine in 2023. And that brings me to the sort of the part that I found quite frustrating about yesterday's uh, argument in, in Gonzalez versus Google, um, which is there wasn't a lot of talk about the actual harms 
to the individuals because of some of this content, right? I mean, it was all about, you know, the harms to companies and it was, you know, Kavanaugh kept talking about the economic harms um, to companies, which is fine, but there are other harms to real people. And and it, it frustrated me that those were underserved in the argument, I think largely because the petitioner did such a bad job offering a workable standard to the court. Um, and it is just frustrating that the idiosyncrasies of who is the advocate um, can matter so much for her, you know, potentially world altering decisions. Well, I, I agree with that. I also think the structure of these two cases was interrelated, right? Because you had the separate liability question, because this is the immunities question that applies to the platforms for all sorts of claims, not just like the specific people who were harmed in this case. So it, I, I get I get why the argument's kind of focused on that. You heard a lot more about the actual harm in these cases for these plaintiffs, which are terrorism victims, in today's oral argument in Tomna, because you're dealing with the liability for that. We, so we don't have that much time left. Before we do, I, I, I want to talk about predictions because that's the only fun thing to do here. And you all can pass on them if you want to step. I have a prediction about how this will play out. I'll throw out for you all to savage, but uh, I think it's there. And it lets us bring in briefly our second case, uh, Tomna, today. I think this is all going to go away under on an ATA determination. Uh, an oral argument today and backing up kind of the U.S. government's view, justices are actually surprisingly, I think, skeptical of a lot of the arguments about a, the narrowest view of the ATA that both the government and the companies put forward. But the one thing they seemed to glom onto is the proximate cause argument, this argument that just because these platforms might have knowingly provided support to ISIS generally, you still need some sort of connection between what they did for ISIS and ISIS's commissioning of a terrorist attack that actually harmed the specific plaintiffs, because otherwise you could hold Twitter responsible. Everybody who's ever harmed by ISIS in any way could come back and sue Twitter. And that's a structure that the government very expressly warned against from a policy perspective. And if that happens, then this 230 question is avoidable and the court doesn't have to reach it. And it struck me that that's kind of what the court might want, because the one thing they can do if they're not ready to draw a line is they can kick it back to the lower courts and say, hey, appellate courts, you've heard us you know, wax and wane on this. We don't know where the line is, but why don't you all as the laboratory and the judicial system take another crack at this? Um, and so we'll see a lot of kind of chaotic court of appeals opinions wrestling with the limits of 230 in the years to come until the Supreme Court takes it up again. That's my prediction. But I'd welcome your guys' thoughts if you all have different different takes. No, I, I think that is the most likely outcome as well. And while it does frustrate me because, you know, my my stake in this or my interest in these cases is 230 and I want to know what 230 means. I, I do think that is probably the best answer at this junction. And, you know, I do think that even if the court kicks the 230 can down the road, it will at least at least signal whether to lower courts, but also to litigants, to scholars thinking about this, that they need to be much more prepared with a fully fledged out set of hypotheticals that really crisply delineate what they want the court to do when it comes to 230, um, right? That that like, you know, you cannot do what the petitioner tried to do, which is come in and not have like a briefcase full of really crisp examples saying, here are 17 fact patterns. Here's the rule I want you to follow. Here's how it's going to take every fact pattern and put it into the liability or non-liability box. And this is the best we can do. And just write this down. And, and I think the court is signaling that it needs help with that because it's exceptionally hard. The other thing I think it might do, and I think I'm probably being over-optimistic here, but you know, I think it also might signal that this is such a hard line drawing problem that maybe we shouldn't be trying to draw lines at all, which is to say maybe the whole paradigm 
of trying to deal with this through the tort law and through a kind of liability shield is just wrong. And we need something different. Maybe we need something like a notice and takedown system like we have with the DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. I think I meant that acronym correctly. Sorry if I'm not. But basically, you know, the way we deal with copyright on the internet is we have a whole scheme whereby platforms set up notice systems. And if they use those notice systems and they act on them in some reasonable fashion, they are otherwise immune from copyright liability. Maybe we need something like that for the kind of set of Section 230 cases we're dealing with, where Congress you know, sets out for different kinds of liabilities, different standards. Maybe that's the kind of research agenda going uh, going forward. But I do think, Scott, that that your your prediction is is uh, most the most likely. Okay, so from a really difficult legal question to a not difficult at all legal question. Let's talk about the Dominion lawsuit against Fox. Um, so as uh, Scott mentioned at the top of the show, the voting machine company Dominion has sued Fox for a lot of money, I think over a billion dollars, um, for defamation um, stemming from the sort of weeks-long campaign that Fox took after the 2020 election to spread all sorts of falsehoods and conspiracy theories against Dominion. Um, this was, you know, some real kooky stuff, to put it mildly. And in this filing that Dominion has has made, um, just showing the power of getting to discovery, it just has reams of evidence, uh, internal messages, emails, text messages from um, Fox news hosts and anchors and executives, basically showing in a way that is, I think, just uh, almost unprecedentedly vivid in a defamation case, that Fox, not just had an idea that the claims that it was peddling were false, but that they basically knew um, that what they were saying was false, which is just the um, worst nightmare of of any media lawyer. Um, And I'm sure Fox has many. There are so many examples uh, in this case. Um, You know, my my favorite set, it was highlighted in a a NPR article uh, that that we'll link, which talked about the providence of a memo that made its way to Sidney Powell, that then made its way to uh, uh, Maria Bartiromo, which then became kind of one of the central talking points about Dominion. And, you know, the, the, the memo was full of conspiracy theories about how Dominion machines were changing votes. But what was really amazing was um, who the person who wrote the memo, she's unnamed, but apparently uh, she said that she knows this information because it's told to her in dreams and by ghosts and that she listens to the wind, and that she was internally decapitated, but she's okay. Which I I yeah, don't. Although the wind, the wind tells her that she's a ghost, but she that she's a ghost. Yes, but she was internally decapitated, but she's okay. And I'm just, I just want to say, I'm glad that she's okay because internal decapitation. While I'm not sure entirely what it means, it sounds uncomfortable. And and this was known to everyone. And so I don't know. <laughs> To put it in precise legal language, Fox seems screwed. And the first thing I want to ask is to you, Quinta, what does this tell us about Fox as a journalistic institution? Quinta, you're the, as I like to troll you with, you're the closest we have to a journalist. Um, On behalf of journalists, what does this Uh tell you about Fox News? 
Well, so most journalistic organizations do not work this way. <laughs> Listeners will be shocked to hear. I do. I mean, look, it's sort of confirmation of everything that we've suspected about Fox. Um, and I think that if you so it's chock full, as you said, Alan, of just insane tidbits like this. And there's also some the sort of dynamics of what's happening within Fox. The story that the filing tells is essentially Fox's decision desk, which is independent. And the guy who who ran at Chris while later left Fox calls Arizona for Biden. This sets off kind of a freak out among Fox's uh, loyal viewers. And we should say, not only did Fox call it for Biden, but Fox was the first station, yes. yeah. right, to, to do Thank it. You. That's yeah. what was partially Good so point. jarring about it. And so so what happens then is that the the hosts sort of get mad, but they're not in full-fledged revolt over these ideas of voter fraud until they start seeing that people are abandoning Fox and going tuning in instead to Newsmax and OANN because those outlets are embracing Trump's idea that the election was somehow stolen. And so there's this kind of feedback loop of, you know, you pump up the people who are on the far right fringe, then you're not fringy enough for them. They abandon you, then you get fringier to win them back and around and around and around we go. And I think it it paints a really vivid picture of that kind of toxic dynamic that Fox is locked into with its audience. And you, again, you could kind of see that happening in real time just from what was available publicly, but seeing the internal documentation is something else, especially when you have people like Tucker Carlson texting, I don't have the filing in front of me, but essentially texting saying like, we can't follow Trump down this road. It's going to destroy us, you know, and (laughs) look where we are today. I have to say, this was like one of the most entertaining reads I've had in a really long time. And it was absolutely amazing. And it's worth like really emphasizing now, like you read a lot of legal briefs and they're based off uh, usually like a lot of briefing and legal argument happens at the motion to dismiss phase, right? So they're based upon allegations and complaints. That's not what this is. This is for summary judgment. They've gotten discovery. They've done depositions of these people. They've gotten copies of these text messages. So this is like a really, really substantial summary of a lot of evidence, which is kind of amazing. And, and can I just pause you for a second, Scott? Because I just want to clarify what the legal standard here is, because I think this is actually really important, right? So uh, under this very famous case, New York Times versus Sullivan, the First Amendment requires for a successful defamation case um, where the target of the defamation is a public figure, it requires more than just the regular, you know, negligence or whatever. It requires, it's like actual knowledge or true malice. I forget the exact term. Actual um, malice. Actual malice. Actual malice. Um, it's an exceptionally, exceptionally high standard, right? You basically have to know that what you are saying is false, or you have to be pretty sure that there's a very, very, very high chance that what you're saying is false and you just didn't even care. You didn't even bother. Um, it's an, a really, really high standard and um, it's almost never met. And so when you have these defamation claims at the motion to dismiss stage against public figures, and Dominion here is for purposes of the 2020 election, a uh, public figure, right? Uh, you you have these like endless legal arguments trying to parse, well, did this kind of meet this or not? Because you often don't have any sort of smoking gun. Whereas here, Dominion's like, yep, we're going to, we are happy to accept the highest legal burden imaginable. Here's a hundred pages of like, forget smoking guns, mushroom clouds. And I think that is just what you never, ever see. And and that they're they're dropping this, they're asking for summary judgment, right? 
I, I forget what oh, the specific yeah, 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 standard yeah. is, but they're, they're saying like no reasonable jury could find that there wasn't actual malice. <laughs> so I have no idea if the judge will grant that, but it's definitely like they're, they're coming in with guns blazing. Yeah. And look, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not a first amendment lawyer, so I, I'm like stepping outside of my lane here, but on reading this thing, I think they might win because <laughs> it's a really, oh, really yeah. compelling document. It's amazing. It's a super high bar. I think courts will be hesitant to do it. Um, you know, a lot of re- like countervailing factors in spite of that. This is a damn compelling brief. Yeah, I will. I will say, I mean, so one interesting thread is I think that the sort of traditional reaction of people who work in the media space when there is a big defamation suit like this is to say, oh, no, but we don't you know, we don't want you know, the New York Times to be held liable for this, that, and the other because it would impede our ability to have free press, et cetera, et cetera. I will, I will actually say um, I had a really interesting conversation with, uh, with someone who studies this stuff a, a while ago for a piece that is about half-written, so stay tuned if I ever get around to finishing it. And the, the point that she was making is that you can make an excellent argument that it is cases like these that show that the Sullivan Standard works. Right. So Sullivan has gotten a lot of criticism in recent years, among other people, I believe, from Justice Thomas on the grounds that it's just it's it's too hard. Nobody can ever meet that standard. And what cases like this one show. And by the way, I think this case is the farthest along, but there's a suite of other similar cases uh, growing out of defamation claims from lies exactly like these told around the 2020 election that like there actually is stuff that can meet the Sullivan standard. And it's really bad. (laughs) And so under that reasoning, you don't actually need to worry about Sullivan because this shows that Sullivan can work. And also that the conduct that is unacceptable under the Sullivan standard is so far from the behavior of outlets like the New York Times. I mean, if you compare this to the uh, the trial that happened a couple months ago with the New York Times, Sarah Palin's lawsuit uh, against the, the Times for some conduct with the editorial page, the neuroticism and anxiety um, on the Times editorial page, which did screw up, is just like, it's in a different universe from what's described here. It's just not the same thing at all. And so I actually come away from this thinking, you know, I'm not worried at all about what's going to happen to the New York Times if Dominion wins this case. In fact, I think they should win, and I think it would be great if they won. Um, and so I do think that's like a weird position for me to be taking because I'm used to being the person who says, you know, well, it's really difficult to distinguish between, you know, well, what, what is what is journalism anyway, yada, yada. But this, this, I think, is actually a rare case in which the line is actually pretty easy to draw. Yeah. And that makes it just so much easier. Like, and it it's, makes it so fundamentally foolish for Fox News to put themselves in this position, astoundingly. But they've done it time and time again for years, and no one's gone to the cost of actually pursuing a lawsuit like this, which I think leads us to our next question. I'm curious your all's thoughts about it. Like, what does this mean for both Fox News and former, maybe for the broader industry? Damn you, Scott. I am the host for this segment. I ask the questions. I'm sorry. So what I'd like <laughs> to ask, and I think I'm going to ask you, Scott. So what I'm curious about is what does this mean for Fox News? Uh, financially, <laughs> financially. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Financially and also reputationally. And reputationally from, from of course, both sides, right? which is to say the it's like far right flank that is trying to defect to OANN and America First and Der Sturmer and I, I don't know who else is in, in that. And, and it's, I don't want to say left flank, but like, you know, there, there is a big readership of Fox that's like sort of like normie Republicans, right, who do watch Fox because they don't want to watch MSNBC. So, well, yeah, what, what, what's going to happen? 
So, you know, it's a really good question between the financial versus like reputational harm. Uh, I, I got to say the reputational harm, I'm not sure what really comes of this because it's such a technical sort of judgment, right? It's going to come through the lens of the same media vehicles that are at issue here uh, and can be spun in a way like people knew there are lots of documented cases of Fox doing stuff like this, right? And like not to the scale and not to this extent, but you have to actually read this briefing to kind of get into it. Frankly, the one thing that maybe would make a difference is if like Fox eventually had to settle and had to do things like a public apology, which would or kind of uh, clarification, which would not be unusual in a lawsuit, uh, a defamation lawsuit, to say like part of the term is you actually come have to come out and correct your misstatement, your defamatory statement, right? So maybe that comes in place here. That's not going to be something a court would rule. That would be they're not going to rule like a. Kind of, I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think that's something the court would rule in a case like this. It'd have to be in a settlement. Otherwise, it'll just get damages. But but wait, but but before we get to the money part, I mean, the the thing that the, the reason I do wonder if this might actually stick is because you know if you read the brief, and again, you have to read the brief, but people will pull pull out the juicy parts right from the brief. It it just shows not just that that Fox is full of liars. But it, it shows kind of even worse, quote unquote, that Fox has contempt for its viewers, right? I mean, that to me is just what is so amazing, like just how stupid Fox seems to think that its viewers are, that they will believe, you know, nonsense from someone who is, quote unquote, internally decapitated. But, you know, like in Monty Python, got better. <laughs> Except the thing is that, you know, they, they frame that contempt in the language of respect. Right, like if you look, people. our serious. listeners are good people. That's, yeah, that's what they say. That's, that's that's some said. some real Orwell yes. shit. Yes, <laughs> nobody. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And I have deep contempt for you, you moron. <laughs> deep respect right, no, for you, deep you respect. moron. Yeah, essentially, essentially, right. And so, and they're they're terrified of them. Um, and so I do think that 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 makes this dynamic all the weirder. It's like that. It's like that. Uh, it's like that Twilight Zone episode of you know Little Timmy. Right, it's like a whole town just terrified of it's like a little child. Oh. Well, I, I will say I, I do think this comes down to the money, the money effects, and it's it's a it's a good question here, right? There's a big sum of money even for Fox News, but it's not going to cripple them. It's not going to take them out as a corporation, right, on its own. But Dominion is not the only group that can bring a lawsuit like this, and certainly not the only group that could bring a lawsuit like this if you bring in OAN and and all these other groups, right? So I, I feel like this is a strategy that has potential, and we've kind of broken the seal on these things between this, uh, you know, the lawsuit against uh, Alex Jones. We've seen a number of these things for the last few years, and I really think that this is the beginning of a trend. And I think, Ned, it's a good one for the reasons you note, Quinta, because these are cases that are such outliers. I think the actual threat to actual responsible media is pretty limited on these facts. I, I may get nervous about that later, but I think it's fine. The one thing I'll know here, the real pressure I, I want to know about is their insurance policies. Because the way they survive one or two of these, especially the first couple of these lawsuits, is that they're heavily insured for it, right? And so they're not going to cost Fox that much. They probably cost a, a fair amount after because there's a pretty big sum probably past their insurance limits, right? But on the, on the first instinct, they're going to say, okay, well, we took an insurance hit for this. But then what are their insurance companies going to do? If they're exposing themselves to this level of risk and then their real plaintiffs begin to manifest, they might be uninsurable. And maybe that follows Tucker Carlson around. Maybe it's not just Fox. Maybe it's actual Tucker Carlson. It becomes uninsurable. And that's a real sanction. That's what happens to like irresponsible doctors um, and other professionals. And I, I'm not sure why it shouldn't happen to irresponsible journalists as well. So I'm very curious to see where this goes. I, I think it's actually like a positive trend as, as much as I sympathize with uh, some of the heartburn it gives people who like the media. 
All right, folks. Well, that brings us to the end of our time together today, almost, because we still have that one thing that we refuse, no matter how often you keep asking to leave you without in the week to come. (laughs) We are back in your podcatcher. That is Object Lessons. Alan, what do you have for us this week as an Object Lesson? It's the the best part. It's the fun facts part of of the episode. Um, So my pick this week is a new television show called Poker Face. Uh, it is on, oh God, what of the 17 st- – it's on Peacock, the eighth most popular streaming service. It stars uh, Natasha Lyonne of, well, at least for my generation, inescapably American Pie fame, but uh, most recently uh, Russian Doll fame as I, – I don't even know quite how to describe it – kind of a washed-up former poker player um, who gets into all sorts of criminal – hijinks I, I i've only seen one episode i think only one episode has been, been released uh so far uh though actually i'm not sure i've only seen one episode um, my understanding it's a kind of a crime of the week uh sort of show it's just it's amazing i mean it's amazing on so many levels it's a ryan johnson vehicle and it's like ryan johnson as his, at his ryan johnsoniest so it's really fun and quirky it, it has natasha leone who is just so fabulous and i think has made one of the most impressive career comebacks of of anyone in in Hollywood, like a, like a Brendan Fraser level career comeback, she is unbelievably charming, especially to elder millennials like me, and I suspect Scott uh, finds her equally charming. The first episode, I will say, this, the 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 show is totally stolen by Adrian Brody. However, so it's it's worth it just for Adrian Brody going full full Brody. It's it's really it's really fabulous. Uh, huge recommend Poker Face on Peacock. I got excited for the show when I watched Glass Onion, the sequel to Knives Out, and there's a scene uh, where Daniel Craig is in the bath, like Skyping with some of his friends, where obviously Ryan Johnson just called like his most eclectic group of friends. And if I recall correctly, I believe it was the late Stephen Sondheim, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Natasha Leone. Really big <laughs> swing here. Angela Lansbury. And Angela Lansbury was the fourth one. Exactly. <laughs> amazing. Like one amazing cross-section. I was like, is Natasha Leone in this like level of the stratosphere and maybe kind of now. So I'm excited about it. Natasha Leone, America's very unsuspected darling. Exactly. Quinta, what do you have for us? I have some extremely niche gossip, which is my favorite kind of gossip along the lines of like, you'll never believe what happened on this side street that you've never heard of in a city you've never been to. Uh, This is a story from DCist, a local DC publication about uh, the phenomenon of buy nothing groups on Facebook and how uh, petty tyrants tear them apart. Um, and it is delightful. There are, there are apparently in DC, I'm not a member of any of them, there are splinter buy nothing groups. Uh, there are people who got fed up with the splinter buy nothing groups and created groups to mediate between the splintered groups. It's the Judean People's Front and People's Front yeah, of exactly. Judea situation. There's a there's a, a group uh, that's called Take My Shit that was made by people who were sick of the tyranny of the buy nothing moderators. Uh, there's a picture in the article of a, a street in DC where someone put up a sign for the buy nothing demarcation line. Uh, for for where the groups divide, you know, where if you're on this side, you're one group, once this side, you're another group. It is so good. I highly recommend reading it, uh, even if you are not in DC, because it filled me with joy. Yeah, if you think DC is like a weird, boring, like, you know, tightly wound city, you're kind of right, but then you, you're you missing a lot of it. And DC is, I feel like, is a good window into that on occasion. It's It's like House of Cards for ratty sofas. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not exactly, but something like that. 
Well, for my object lesson, I have one that is really aimed primarily at Alan Rosenstein, I think, although other people will appreciate it as well. I, I love this personalized object lesson. Personalized object lesson. Uh, I know Alan is a big fan of kimchi, as am I. Uh, I made a giant batch of kimchi five or six months ago. I don't know if I actually talked about it on here. I meant to make an object lesson. I don't think I ever did because I never made my own before. It was not that hard. Uh, if you have a fermentation crock, really quite good. Uh, or a mason I'm jar. My recipe next time, or a mason, or just a mason jar. I did a vegan version too, so you don't need to do the shrimp paste and all the other stuff that's usually in there that I find gross. But I've had these like three big jars uh, that produce from this of kimchi around forever. I OD'd on it really hard, like three times now. I have to put it away for like a couple weeks. Bring it back out. Oh, I should say, as part of that, I've been making all this kimchi stuff, and a common theme of kimchi is to put American cheese on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you put kimchi, like kimchi fried rice, kimchi ramen, uh, I made like a ch- kimchi tofu, tofu soup at some point. I tried putting cheese on it. Actually, worked really well. It's it's because it's because all of the GIs uh, came into North into South Korea, and so there's this whole generation of of like South Koreans who grew up with like South Korean food and exactly. then spam and American cheese, and like and they just integrated it. Like it's just not a big deal. It's I think it's wonderful. Exactly. It's like very. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. And American cheese, I think, is underrated and actually kind of delicious. You just don't think of it as cheese. Think yeah, it's just not cheese. Things. Cheese product. That's not cheese. But I had a revelatory thing because like when I was – so I, I was on a solo fathering binge for the last three days, meaning I didn't have time to cook good meals. I just had to cook things I could cook quickly with a toddler you know, being distracted for five minutes and that involved some mac and cheese. And I was like, well, you know, Kraft mac and cheese basically is American cheese. You Let me try kimchi, this. You beautiful. I took a big scoop of kimchi. Bastard. I diced it up. I threw oh. in the mac and cheese. It is freaking amazing. It is really one of the best things I've made. It's so good. Such an easy way to spice up what is otherwise like a pretty boring meal. Perfect amount of heat. Perfect amount of tang. The one thing I'll say is that if you take it out fresh out of the fridge, it like cools it down too much. So you got to like add some more hot water and warm it back up. It is amazing. I highly recommend it if you are looking for like a college level easy meal with a little bit of funk and fermentation in it. Kimchi mac and cheese, just a craft type. I'm going to try and figure out now like a recipe for like fancy mac and cheese with kimchi in it, but just craft mac and cheese really nailed it for me. So recommend people try it. Let me know what you think. So this is genius. So so uh, uh, one of the few disputes I have with my wife is over the aroma of kimchi. I love it. My wife is not so much of a fan. So I'm I not am, so much of a fan of the aroma, if I'm yeah, being honest, but, but I yeah. like the taste. But but I, so I will say, so that that that, lim- that limits how much kimchi I can just like slather onto my food at dinner times uh, when I'm eating with my family. But this is brilliant because my son's favorite food is mac and cheese. I'm going to start slowly sneaking kimchi into it. And at some point, it'll be two against one. Because my oh, son will get addicted to, to kimchi. And then, you know, what's my wife going to do? My, my son likes kimchi. I love it. You may want to try the vegan kimchi because I will say it smells a little different. And a okay. Little less yeah. But it, but it still gives you the kind of me. like crunch and spice and, and sourness. Yeah. 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 And like the, 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 the yeah, gochujang, yeah. the uh, gochujaru is like. Gochujaru, yeah. The chili paste. High level. Whatever the chili, you want to put the chili up. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Nice. Nice. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. Please be sure to visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links with past episodes, for our written work and the work of other Lawfare contributors, and information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Benables of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Ellen and Quinta, I am Scott R. Anderson. We will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.